Uh, again, we're starting a new series in this little tiny book in, uh, in the Old Testament here. It's a, it's a minor prophet, uh, the book of Habakkuk. And our, and our reading is, is basically just to, to get us launched off. Uh, it's an introduction to uh, the, the, the series that will follow in the next few weeks. We're just reading Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And so Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and so justice goes forth perverted. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. As I mentioned uh, this morning, we're beginning a new series uh, in this book of Habakkuk. This, this little book typically doesn't come up on maybe top five lists of what's your favorite book of the Bible. Uh, it's often a neglected book. Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets, which is kind of a sad way of saying it's just not very long. Uh, it's a good thing as parents, we don't say our shortest children are our minor children. But alas, that's all that it means. It's just not as big as Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. It's minor in size, but it's not minor in how God uses this book to teach and correct and equip his church. Habakkuk is a powerful, true, and very relevant book because it asks a lot of the same questions that we ask or we should be asking when we face the sin and brokenness and destruction of this world. Um, one of the contentions I'll, I'll make is, you know, for Habakkuk, when he looks at his world, which is Judah, ancient Judah, that is the church. There's no distinction for the Old Testament people of God. And so you could say, these are the kind of questions that we ask when we look at the church that professes Christ and yet um, does not look very Christ-like. We cry out with the same questions that Habakkuk will cry out with. Do we have any Calvin and Hobbes fans here? Um, I did not really read too much of Calvin and Hobbes when I was growing up, but my boys love Calvin and Hobbes. I see a hand over there. we got some fans of Calvin and Hobbes, but they're pretty good. You know, my boys love them, and there is a certain scene that plays out over and over in the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin has this bully in his life named Mo. Mo is twice the size of Calvin, and one story or situation that arises many times throughout the comic strips is that Mo comes up to Calvin, who is on a swing set, and he says, get off my swing. And Calvin replies, no, or he replies, wait your turn, and it always ends up in the same way. Mo punches Calvin and knocks him on his rear end. Cartoon stars surround Calvin. Pal surrounds Calvin. And then Calvin, sitting on his rear end, nursing his wounds, always reflects on this situation with this bully, Mo. And so, for instance, he might say, people who get nostalgic about childhood were obviously never children. And in one comic strip, Calvin refuses to get off the swing. He's blasted to the ground by Mo. And in his reflection, Calvin says the following. It's hard to be religious when certain people are never incinerated by lightning bolts. It's hard to be religious when certain people are never incinerated by lightning bolts. That's Calvin's way of asking, how long, O oh Lord? It kind of feels like Habakkuk. 
Habakkuk sees a world that is sinful and destructive and broken just like we do. He cries out for justice just like we do. He sees a world and a church that's too often in the face of that injustice. Uh, Habakkuk speaks to the suffering that this world knows. It speaks to the ways that we can open our eyes and we should open our eyes to like the real reality of this world. The way that we turn on the news and have horrific tragedies and acts of violence just read off of a teleprompter. Or we can go on Caring Bridge, the website, and we can follow the cancer treatment of a young parent who's going through treatment, a parent of maybe a, we met at our kid's school, and we say, man, that person's just like me going through that treatment. We face our own scary diagnoses, deaths of loved ones, relational breakdowns. We have our own histories of suffering abuse, and so we can cry out, what the heck is going on? Are you there, God? Why aren't you doing anything? How much longer will you let this go on? These are questions that I think we know and I hope we've asked and that we'll ask again. You see, these are questions of great faith, not little faith. The great faith. They're asking the only one who's able to interrupt this world as it is and and we're asking, when will you do something about this? These are the questions of faith, the questions of pilgrims who aren't home yet. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to go over some background on the context of this book. Uh, Again, this is going to kind of be the introduction for the whole series that's before us. And so it's good to know some things about what's going on. Who is Habakkuk? What's the situation in which he finds himself? In terms of Habakkuk himself, we, we know almost nothing about him. We don't know what tribe he's from. We don't know who his parents are. We don't really know what his name means. The best guess uh, from, from modern linguists is that Habakkuk is some kind of Akkadian word for cucumber. I'm not making that up. There's no way I was not going to bless you with that information this morning. I don't know what was going on in the delivery room. Maybe his mom just really wanted a cucumber and everyone got confused. But that's the best guess. It's something along the lines of cucumber or vegetable. That's all I'm going to say about that. By the time Habakkuk comes on the scene, Israel had split a long time ago into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, Israel, two tribes. You have the southern kingdom, Judah, that's ten tribes. In the northern kingdom of Israel, you basically get bad king after bad king after bad king. People typically follow in the way of their king, and so it's not good. And despite God's pleading with them through the prophets, the nation continued to get more and more wicked and rebellious and idolatrous. And so a hundred years before Habakkuk is even written, you have the, the destruction of the northern kingdom. The, the great superpower of that time, Assyria, comes in and boom, the northern kingdom Israel is no more. Now, the kingdom of Judah in the south is different. It's not just wicked king after wicked king. You have good godly kings who are sprinkled in. It kind of zigzags back and forth. The king in Judah during Habakkuk's ministry is Jehoiakim, with an M as in money. Jehoiakim. And he's one of the worst kings. He's not even really a king. He's a puppet king. His dad, Josiah, gets killed in battle uh, to, to Egypt And the Egyptian pharaoh at the time puts Jehoiakim in charge, and basically he owes tribute back to Egypt. And under his reign, there's increased corruption and idolatry. Habakkuk is riding in one of the lowest points of Judah's existence. In 10 to 15 years, the new great superpower in the ancient world, Babylon, will come and lay siege, and Judah will be no more, and most of the people will be taken into exile. That's the history lesson. I'm done. I'm done. 
But Habakkuk sees his nation, and yet again, you could say his church. He sees the people of God, and they are falling apart before his eyes. He sees wickedness prevail and righteousness rejected. He sees a church rejecting the truth, right, and embracing idolatry. He finds himself overwhelmed with a world that's just not the way it's supposed to be. And this morning, we're going to set the stage for everything that's going to come, just with these four verses that we already read. Uh, Two things, basically, that we'll look at. First thing is the the crisis that Habakkuk sees, and secondly, the cry that he prays. And then we'll hopefully wrap everything up with with a conclusion that sets the stage of, of where we'll go. All right, so the crisis and the cry. First of all, what is the crisis? What did the prophet see? The book begins in chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now what's interesting is that this word for for oracle can also be translated as burden. And maybe there's a double meaning there, because in one sense he's a prophet, he has an oracle. On the other hand, he describes this crisis, doesn't he? He describes a, a, a mess of a people, a mess of a nation, and you would say that's a burden that he carries. He describes the state of the culture of Judah. He describes what God's people are like and what they're acting like and what he sees. And it's reasonable to say that Habakkuk is carrying a burden. So what is the burden? He hurts for the sin and destruction among his people. This burden is especially grievous for Habakkuk because it had not always been that way. I mentioned Jehoiakim's father killed in battle, Josiah. If you remember King Josiah, he's one of those kings that does kind of stand out if you know a little bit about your Bibles. Um, He was a good king. He began reigning as king at eight years old, and a few years into his reign, they're, they're going through this big refurbishment project of the temple. It's starting to get a little dated. And so he sends the priests into the temple, and the priests discover the law of God. They discover basically the scrolls of Deuteronomy. And so just take a step back and imagine that when you, and kind of our own understandings of the Old Testament. What we're saying is that God's people did not have any knowledge of the law. They had no knowledge of Deuteronomy. And so under Josiah's reign, they begin to read the Bible again. Uh, they begin to worship according to the Bible. We read that they celebrated Passover, and it was like as if it was the first time they had celebrated the Passover. And so in Habakkuk's life, he's gone, on the one hand, from Josiah's spiritual renewal to Jehoiakim and spiritual destitution. So you can imagine Habakkuk's asking, where's the renewal? Where is the spiritual vitality that was just renewed? Well, that's the burden that Habakkuk carries, that he sees. And so in verse 2, he cries out, violence, and yet will God not save He just cries out violence, this word for violence. It's not literally just beating people up, though that would be part of it. That would be included. It's a word that indicates godlessness, total absence of peace and righteousness. And so in Genesis 6, before the flood, God looks at the earth, and what does he find? Same word, violence. It's a word that pops up all the time in the book of Judges, where everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes. Well, that's what Habakkuk looks around, and he sees violence. In verse 3, Habakkuk sees iniquity, and he questions how God can just see all of this with him. Listen, I'm a prophet. I can just proclaim the truth to the people. I can beg them to stop. I can, I can tell them they're doing terrible, and they should change their ways. But God, you actually can fix the situation, and so why aren't you? Why are you just sitting there? Why do you idly look, uh, look at wrong? 
He sees destruction, violence, strife, contention. Remember Calvin, the comic strip character, not the theologian. It's hard to be religious when God isn't doing anything about this. And so Habakkuk sees the people of God and he hurts. He's in pain over the indifference to God that he sees. It overwhelms him. In verse 4, the law is paralyzed, which is such a powerful phrase. The law, uh, it's just, it's doing nothing. The people of God aren't applying the law in their own lives. They're not applying the law in their families. They're not applying the law in society. And as a result, the wicked surround or entrap the righteous. The wicked surround the righteous, and the righteous just go along with it, and there is no justice. Four verses, I think, sets up the crisis of the prophet. That's what Habakkuk sees. So the next point that we need to look at is what is his response? What does he cry? I think in this book, Habakkuk lays out the pattern of what a servant of God feels when he sees the church that has lost its way. He lays out the pattern of what a servant of God feels and what he cries and she cries to God when we see the church that's lost its way. And it's not excuse making. It's not whataboutism. It's not, yeah, but you should see Babylon or Babylon did this first. It's certainly not indifference and it's not apathy. It's not self-righteousness because God still has to do the saving. It's also not fire and brimstone because judgment is God's prerogative. Habakkuk doesn't have that capability. The proper response is lament. And what is lament? It's the cry of the heart before a God who hears and who listens and who responds to the cries of his people. It's the cry of the heart before a God who hears those cries and who listens to those cries and who responds to those cries. It's expressing our true anguish and pain. And so Habakkuk, our guide, who echoes so many of the Psalms, doesn't he? But he makes his pain known before God. Will you not hear? Will you not save? Will you just look idly on? Lament expresses that pain. Habakkuk carries the burden of sin, the sin and destruction of Judah. And he brings that to the God of promise to the God in whom he trusts. Habakkuk provides us a pattern of lament just like Jesus, the man of sorrows acquainted with our suffering and grief. Jesus who ached as he looked out over Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that had rejected him. At the end of the day, I think lament is a cry of faith. And why I think it's a cry of great faith is because lament is saying, at the end of the day, I have nowhere else to go because you alone have the words of life. Habakkuk has nowhere else to go because God alone has the words of life. And so he cries. Habakkuk looks at Judah. He looks at the people of God who have left behind their worship and their faithfulness. And he cries out, how much longer must this go on? How long before you intervene? Have you ever prayed like Habakkuk prays in verse 2? Are you listening, God? But the prayer of how long, O Lord, is the prayer of one who knows that God is listening. And how long is the cry of faith because it insists that this present world will not always be this way. It insists that this world of sin and destruction, this world of violence, abuse, Hatred, racism, 
injustice, mental illness, drug addiction, persecution, cancer, all of those will be swallowed up in the kingdom of Jesus. How long, O Lord, is a good prayer? You know how we know it's a good prayer? Because perfect saints in heaven cry out the same prayer. In Revelation 6, John has this vision of the souls that had been slain for the word of God. He looks at martyrs and he hears them. And what do they cry? O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they're told to wait just a little while longer. How long, O Lord, is the prayer of Advent? That season that we just finished up on, the season of waiting. How long, O Lord, is the waiting prayer? Come, Lord Jesus, because you alone can interrupt this world and all of its brokenness and sin and restore your kingdom. You see the crisis that Habakkuk sees, his cry of lament, how long, O Lord? So as we wrap up right now, what are some conclusions that we can draw, even from this introduction? Um, what are some themes that we'll see throughout this book and, and variations on these themes in the weeks to come? The first message of Habakkuk that we'll see over and over again and that already we're starting to get to is that God's delay does not mean God's abandonment. God's delay does not mean God's abandonment. One of the main points of this book is the prophet crying out, God, where are you? And God responding to the prophet, I've been right here all along. I'm right here, and, and not passively. God is not idly looking on, as Habakkuk suggests, but he's actively accomplishing his purposes. God is at work shaping us in love for his glory and our good, even when we can't see it. So the first message of Habakkuk is God's delay, right? And this is hard for us, isn't it? Because we are a people of instant gratification. Think of all of the daily frustrations that are only getting worse in this current age that we live in. Every time the internet loads too, too slow. Every time the microwave cooks the meal too slow. But God's delay does not mean God's abandonment. Second message that we'll see throughout Habakkuk is the more you pursue God in faith, the more your heart will align with God's heart. The more that you look to God, the more that you follow God, the more that you pursue God in faith, the more your heart will align with God's heart. And I could just as easily replace the word heart with hurt. The more that you pursue God, the more that your hurt will align with God's hurt. Habakkuk has seen a people, his church, go from spiritual renewal to spiritual destitution, and it breaks his heart. I think this is such an important takeaway from this book, is that our hurt and our anger and our fear need to align with the heart of God, which is why we spend time in his word. And this is another message that I think is just so powerful in this day and age. Is everything is vying for our our attention. Uh, Tim Keller has a great line where he talks about, you know, whatever grabs your attention, that's what you give your heart to. And, and this is the day and age we live in, is we're constantly bombarded with people trying to get our attention. If you think that's bad, uh, just stay after the break, and I'll tell you what's really bad. Social media algorithms trying to figure out what will keep us coming back, and they've decided it's what makes us angry. Well, Habakkuk is going to shape our hearts. And he's going to say the more you stay close to God, your hearts will not be aligned by that, or by that, or by that, it'll be aligned by the heart of God. 
which means to have a zeal for God's name and God's glory that surpasses my zeal for my own name and my own glory. The third message, and this is the final message I'll mention from Habakkuk, is that Habakkuk will teach us where in this world that feels so hopeless so often where our hope is found. Third message of Habakkuk is he will teach us where our hope is found. Our prophet stands in for us asking the questions that we all have, and God doesn't answer him here at the beginning of chapter 1, not in the first four verses, but he will answer Habakkuk eventually. And God's answer to Habakkuk is the heart of the book, and it's the good news for the prophet, and it's the good news for you and I as we live our lives in this world. Despite this book's size and how Habakkuk does often just sound like any other Old Testament prophet, kind of calling out the sins of his people, uh, at the heart of his book, we have one of the most important verses in the New Testament, which was central to the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. The hope of Habakkuk and God's people is found in Habakkuk 2.4, where God basically interrupts with this, but the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk's hope is the same hope that is available for you and I, that we put our faith in the God of promise. And so to say that we are to live by faith does run the risk of sounding cliched. That a key takeaway of Habakkuk is to live by faith. Uh, It can sound kind of like nothing. It can sound like spiritual mumbo jumbo. But here's where Habakkuk is getting with this idea of but the righteous will live by faith. It's that we grab hold of the anchor of God's word in the storm of life. It's that even in our confusion and chaos where we're wondering and we're crying out, how long are you seeing this? What are you up to? We can entrust ourselves to the purpose and promises of God. And friends, we cry out to the God who hears our cries. And I also say more than this, we cry out to the God who cried in our place. See, Jesus at the cross would cry out in the face of wickedness and sin and injustice, but he would be abandoned and he would be left there. One of the key aspects of Habakkuk is that he is this prophet who doesn't act like a normal prophet, does he? In many ways, you think of a prophet has the word of God and he brings it to the people, but really Habakkuk is speaking to God as a prophet. And one of the key aspects of this book is that he is speaking to God and God answers him. And then we have this stark contrast. Jesus on the cross, feeling the full weight of the sin of God's people, feeling the full weight of our sin, he cries out. In the midst of his pain, in the face of sin, he cries to God, and he receives no answer. God is silent. We cry out to the God who hears our cries, and more than this, we cry to the God who cried in our place. Hebrews 5, 7 says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. There's a beautiful saving paradox in that Jesus' cries and his questions from the cross were left unanswered. There was silence. He received nothing back. And yet, as Hebrews 5 insists, make no mistake, he was heard. Our better prophet was heard. Our our perfect priest had his work accepted. Jesus would become sin for us, taking the place of sinners, receiving no answers, just the judgment and the justice that we deserve. One of the 
songs that's been going through my head this week as I've been writing this. It, it's, it's from my, probably my favorite Christian music artist, Andrew Peterson. I don't know if you've heard of him, but I, I recommend Andrew Peterson. He, he makes really, really beautiful music. And he has this song that speaks to so many of these issues in, in Habakkuk. And so it's one of those you hum it all week. And it's the song, You're Always Good. And I'll just read you a couple lines from that song, which I think just beautifully fit in with where we will go uh, in, the, in the next few weeks with Habakkuk. He sings, you're always good, as we try to believe what is not meant to be understood. Will you help us to trust your intentions for us are still good? Because you laid down your life and you suffered like I never could. We hear a lot about seeing the world or seeing each other or seeing God through the lens or the prism of the cross. But that's a visual metaphor, isn't it? To look through a lens or a prism. But a cry, of course, isn't visual, it's auditory, it's heard. So let me suggest a little flip of that metaphor, that the cry, how long, is now heard with the reverberations of the cross. That the cry, how long, is maybe heard with the reverberations, to take the metaphor even further, bouncing off the walls of an empty tomb. To live by faith is no spiritual platitude, it's a cross-shaped anchor in the storm. By faith, we know that we're not alone. That though God seems silent, he's not. That though God seems disengaged, he's engaged. We live by faith, sharing in the hope of Habakkuk, but with the view of the cross as the great reminder that our cries are heard. That he will never abandon you or forsake you, dear Christian. Let's pray. Lord, I, I confess that so easily it's, or it's just so much easier to be drawn away through the crises of this world. It, it's so easy to have our, our feet moved um, by, the, by the world that surrounds us, by the, by the bad news that, that constantly afflicts us. Yet as the psalmist says in Psalm 112, uh, bad news will not move me. Lord, that's the message of Habakkuk. The message to live by faith, not a spiritual platitude, but to cling to the, the sure foundation of your word. To cling to the anchor of the cross, even amidst the storms of life. Um, various storms that we have been through, various storms that we know, whatever storms are going on in this room right now in our own lives, Lord, would we grasp hold of your promises to us? Would we grasp hold that there's going to be an answer to this how long when you make all things new? So Lord, would you bless the, the, the preaching of the word? Uh, would you bring us closer to your heart that we would align our, our anger, that we would align our fears, that you would align our hopes and our dreams with the heart of God? Lord, would you do that work that only you can do? Would you keep our, our eyes and our hearts, so to speak, fixated on the cross where there you proved your faithfulness and your goodness to us? Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the word of the cross, which is powerful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.